And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 129 as we continue our series in the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms for the journey, specifically for the journey home. And in the Old Testament, God commanded his people three times a year to take this journey to the Passover, to the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booze. And so they would ascend to Jerusalem, which was on Mount Zion, about 2,500 feet above sea level. And so these were psalms for the journey, because the psalmist wants to remind you that you are on a journey, that this place is not your home, but that you're on a way to a place that is. You see, all of life is a journey, and so you're a pilgrim, and you're on a pilgrimage. And the arranger of the Psalms, the arranger of the Psalter, in the Psalms of Ascent, is giving you tools that you might need on the journey. And so in Psalms 126 to 128, these have been about joy and work and happiness and blessing and children. And these are what we would call Psalms of Orientation. That is, there are psalms of how to rejoice and worship in times of blessing. But Psalm 129 is a psalm of disorientation. And there are many psalms like this in the Psalter. What do you do when your world falls apart? What do you do when the brokenness seeps in? When life takes an unexpected turn? This is a psalm about suffering. And on the journey home, you will experience suffering. And so I'm glad that this psalm gets included in the Psalms of Ascent because there are times on your journey that you're going to need this psalm. There are times when your road will take you to hard places. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're there now. Maybe it's right around the bend. We got back from vacation uh, last week, and on vacation, one of the things that we love to do is we love to hike. And so at one point, we were in Colorado, and we were hiking Mount Flora. Now, Mount Flora goes up to 13,200 feet. That's about two and a half miles above sea level. And this hike was a seven-mile hike out and back, and we gained 1,800 feet of elevation. And it gets a little hard to breathe up at two and a half miles above sea level. And the path was really narrow. And we discovered that it's not that I have a fear of heights, but I have a fear of falling off the mountain to my death, right? And so I found myself in this season as we're walking along. It's cold and we're bundled up. There's not much conversation. And I found myself repeating the 23rd Psalm over and over again. But I discovered something about the relationship between verse 3 and verse 4 of the 23rd Psalm. The 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Then verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And you know what comes next? Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley 
of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. But do you see the connection there? You can be walking on the path of righteousness for his namesake, and it can still what? Turn into the valley of the shadow of death. What do you do when your path turns into the valley of the shadow of death? How do we survive suffering? Well, I'm going to look at this morning at Psalm 129 under four headings. In verse 1 and 3, we're going to look at retelling our pain. In verses 2 and 4, we're going to consider remembering, remembering our deliverance. In verses 5 through 8, releasing our anger. And verse 8, reorienting our story. Retelling our pain, remembering our deliverance, releasing our anger, and reorienting our story. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. The Lord transforms our affliction into blessing as we wait on Him. The Lord transforms our affliction into blessing as we wait on Him. As we turn to Psalm 129 this morning, I want to do two things that are a little bit unusual. One is I want to read Psalm 129 responsively. So I'll read the odd verses, and then you respond by reading the even verses with me. And the other thing that I want to do is I want to stand this morning. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? I'll read the odd verses. We'll read the even verses together. A Song of Ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you be seated? And then would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we consider suffering, I pray for those who are there now whose scars are deep. I pray that you would be with them this morning, that there would be deep comfort that we would find in your word. I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all, let's consider together then in verses 1 and 3, retelling our pain. Retelling our pain. In verse 1, the whole of Israel's history is portrayed as a life. 
And so the speaker simultaneously becomes a personification and an embodiment of Israel. And he speaks of Israel's affliction. He says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And greatly gives the sense here of, some, of an oppression, of an affliction that is endless and relentless. It goes on and on and on. But what is Israel's youth? Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. We find Israel's youth in the book of Exodus. Do you remember how the nation of Israel was born? The nation of Israel was born out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And that's how, just how the nation began. From there, they were attacked and oppressed by kingdom after kingdom and empire after empire. And this psalm would have been included in the Psalter at a time when Israel knew affliction. You see, around 400 BC, Israel was no longer a sovereign nation. They didn't possess the land. There was no king on the throne. It was true disorientation. They were sojourners in a foreign land. Israel knew affliction. But the psalmist doesn't just voice his affliction generally. He voices it specifically, and he gives it an image so that you can really begin to feel this affliction. Look at verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now, I had to look up furrows just to be sure. And a furrow is a long trench made in the ground for planting seeds. And so the idea is, you know, a plow, right? This, this big, heavy piece of equipment that has blades on it. And those blades are curved, and they're really, really sharp. And the idea is that they open up the ground, and they turn the soil over. And then you put something heavy on the back of it so it digs deeply into the ground. And then you attach it to a beast of burden, an oxen or such. And the oxen pulls that heavy plow through the dirt, and it opens up the soil. It turns the soil over. And the picture here is that that field, that field is Israel's back. It's Israel's back. And the plow is cutting trenches, cutting furrows. And these are long furrows. Israel's back is raw and turned over, torn up. It's furrow after furrow, like a plowed field. And sometimes our pain feels like that. And as he describes Israel's affliction, he invites all Israel to say it with him. That's why we read this responsibly this morning. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. You see, first he says it, and then he invites Israel to say it with him. You see, the psalmist knows that there is something life-giving about voicing your affliction. But sometimes the words can be hard to find. And so he says it first, and then he invites Israel to say it with him. He's inviting them to say it out loud together, to talk about their pain one to another. Do you know how important it is to tell the truth about your pain? Jim Collins, in his book on leadership, Good to Great, 
names the Stockdale Paradox after Admiral Jim Stockdale, who during the Vietnam War was held in a prisoner of war camp for eight years, and he was tortured over 20 times. And Collins asks Stockdale, how did you survive for eight years in a POW camp? And Stockdale says, I never lost faith in the end of the story. You see, he trusted that he would get out. He trusted that he would prevail. He trusted that this event would become a defining experience of his life. Who didn't make it out, Collins asks. The optimists. You see, the optimists would think, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and go. We're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and go. We're going to be out by Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving would come and go. And then all of a sudden, it was Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. Stockdale says, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with a discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. Collins says that Stockdale taught him that what separates people is not the presence or the absence of difficulty. Rather, it's how they dealt with the inevitable difficulties of life. And Collins states the Stockdale paradox this way, you must retain faith that you will prevail in the end, and you must also confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to survive affliction, we need to speak the truth about our pain. We need to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. We can't hide it. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't ostrich it, right? Stick your head in the sand and ignore it and pretend it'll go away as much as I like to do that sometimes. We have to face it because there's something life-giving about voicing your affliction. In The Soul of Shame, Kurt Thompson talks about the brain science behind retelling our pain. He says that for those who have undergone pain and trauma, have experienced shame, that retelling our story, telling the truth about our pain to listeners who listen with concern and empathy actually begins to reshape that memory. Because now, not only do you have the memory of the pain and the memory of the trauma, but embedded in that, you have a new memory. A new memory of sharing that story to people who listened with care and concern. And in the retelling of it, that new memory begins to reshape the old memory, and it begins to rewire our brain. You see, retelling our pain to listeners who listen with concern and empathy actually changes our brains. Retelling our pain begins to bring healing. And so the psalmist invites us to speak about our pain and to be specific because healing begins in the retelling of our pain. There's something life-giving about voicing your affliction, retelling our pain. And then secondly, we have remembering our deliverance, remembering our deliverance. 
I'm fascinated by stories of survivors. I seem to have been uh, on a kick in the last couple of years. My reading tends to come up again and again uh, with stories of survivors. Fictionally, uh, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead or The Great Alone by Kristen Hanna. Nonfiction, and maybe nonfiction is more powerful, Educated by Tara Westover, Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand, or Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And do you know what they all have in common? In the end, the protagonist, the hero, the heroine, the, the main character, in the end, the protagonist prevails. The protagonist prevails. They face whatever comes their way, and in the end, they're still standing. In the end, they survive. Unbroken is the story of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was the son of Italian immigrants who grew up in California in poverty, and he became a runner. He was a quite good runner. At the graduation from high school, he entered the 1936 Olympics that were held in Berlin. He ran the 8,000 meters, and as a high schooler, recently graduated, he only finished eighth but he ran the last lap of the 5,000 meters in 56 seconds. It was so fast that it caught Adolf Hitler's attention, and Hitler wanted to meet with him in person. Louis Zamperini went on to enlist in the Air Force, and at one point during World War II, uh, he was out with his plane on a search and rescue mission, and something went wrong mechanically in the plane, and the plane crashed and only three of the 11 airmen survived. One died a bit later. Louis Zamperini was stranded at sea, and he was stranded at sea fighting off storms and sharks and uh, shrapnel from Japanese bombers that went over. At one point, and this actually happened twice, an albatross lands on the raft, and Louis catches it, and they kill it. And they think, ah, oh, we can survive, we'll eat raw bird. And of course, you can't eat raw bird, so they're throwing up, and they go, ah, but you know what, who might eat raw bird? The fish. So they cut up the albatross, and they feed the albatross to the fish, and they catch the fish, and they eat the fish. The previous record for survival at sea had been 27 days. Louis Zamperini and his pilot friends survived at sea for 47 days. At the end of that time, on the 47th day, the Navy came and picked Louis up. There was only one problem. It was the Japanese Navy. And the Japanese Navy took him to a prisoner of war camp where he spent the last two years of World War II. And in that POW camp, he was targeted and tortured repeatedly by prison guard Mutsuhiro Watanabe who was known as the bird. At the end of the war, Louis, along with all of the other prisoners, was set free. And at the age of 80, Louis returned to Japan and ran a leg of the Olympic torch relay in the 1998 Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan. You see, at the end of it all, the Pacific Ocean didn't prevail against Louis. The POW camp didn't prevail against Louis. The bird didn't prevail against Louis. In the end, Louis prevailed. 
And that's the sense that we get there in verse 2. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have what? They have not prevailed against me. Israel was greatly afflicted. And maybe you have been too. Israel was greatly afflicted. Long furrows were plowed on Israel's back, yet Israel survived. Israel prevailed. In the New Testament, Paul experienced great affliction, and he knew what it was to have his back plowed. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Do you know why it was less one? Because I thought 40 lashes would kill a man. Five times he's whipped to the edge of death. He goes on, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, and night and day I was adrift at sea. In the same letter, do you know what Paul says about affliction and perseverance? It was our New Testament reading this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That's the Stockdale paradox retaining faith that you will prevail in the end and confronting the most brutal facts of your current reality, acknowledging affliction and holding on to hope, voicing your pain and not giving in to despair. That's what it means to prevail. That's what it means to survive affliction. But where does this strength come from to prevail? The strength comes from remembering our deliverance. Look at verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. You see, this is an announcement of victory. The cords of the wicked, the cords that bound you, the cords that enslaved you, those cords have been cut. Why? Because the Lord is righteous. You are free. It's an announcement of victory to a people who have been afflicted. Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation on September 22, 1862, during the Civil War, and the Emancipation Proclamation freed three and a half million slaves in Confederate states. But nobody told Texas, and the war was still going on. On April 9th, 1865, two and a half years later, General Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at the Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, functionally ending the Civil War. It wasn't until two months after that, on June 19, 1865, that Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger announced General Order No. 3 in Galveston, Texas, declaring that slaves were free. It was an announcement of freedom to a people who had been afflicted. 
And that day is now commemorated as Juneteenth. And you can imagine the reaction from shock to sheer jubilation. It was a new beginning. Many left their plantation, set out to find relatives to start a new life. Can you imagine the strength that they would have drawn from that to face whatever comes next? Yes, there would be struggles ahead of them, but they would face those struggles as free people. Nothing would compare to slavery. They had been set free. They had a new status, a new identity, a new beginning. And remembering that deliverance, remembering that freedom, would give them strength to prevail whatever comes. So on the one hand, the psalmist is teaching us that we must retell our pain. But on the other hand, the psalmist is teaching us that we must also remember our deliverance. Retell our pain and remember our deliverance. And I would, uh, I would put out there this morning that you have a natural inclination to one camp or the other. You either kind of naturally fit over here in retelling your pain, and you kind of ignore the other camp of remembering our deliverance, or you sit over here in the camp of remembering our deliverance, and you kind of ignore the camp of retelling our pain. And the psalmist is saying that the way to survive affliction is you have to hold both together. You have to retell your pain and remember your deliverance. Thirdly, in verses 5 through 8, we have releasing our anger. Releasing our anger. So, as we survive affliction, how do we deal with those who have afflicted us? How do we deal with our enemies? Some would say revenge. One of my favorite movies is Gladiator, and in Gladiator, a Roman general is left for dead, and he's picked up, and he becomes a slave, and then he's turned into a gladiator. And there's a scene after this Roman general, Maximus, has won a battle in the Colosseum as a gladiator, where the new emperor is so impressed, this new corrupt emperor, right, Commodus, demands to meet him. He wants to know his identity. And so there's a scene where the two of them are on the Colosseum floor and Commodus, the emperor, demands to know Maximus's identity and Maximus takes off his helmet. And he says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the enemies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And you can hear the longing for things to be set right. He wants justice. He wants revenge. He wants vengeance. And as much as that echoes in my soul, that is not the Christian response. What does Jesus say? Jesus says that we're supposed to love our enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But how do we get there? How do we move from this desire for revenge, this longing to, for justice, to loving our enemies? 
Well, I used to think that the way to do this was I just needed to kind of fabricate niceness. I needed to manufacture kindness. You know, in a white knuckle it, stuff your anger, think only happy thoughts kind of a way. Can you imagine how that worked out for me? Not, not very well. That's not what the psalmist teaches here. The psalmist teaches us to release our anger, to release our anger through imprecatory prayer. Look at verses 5 through 8. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor those who pass by say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. Let's be honest, that, that's not very nice, right? It makes me a little uncomfortable the first time I hear it. We're praying that our enemies would be what? They'd be put to shame. They would be like withered grass, not worthy of a harvest. And so there's no harvest blessing. That doesn't sound very kind. But notice what the psalmist is doing. He's being honest and authentic with his feelings. But instead of dumping them on his enemy, he does what? He takes them to God. You see, loving your enemy doesn't mean that we don't have feelings of hatred and anger. Instead, it shapes how we deal with those feelings of hatred and anger. And by taking this imprecatory prayer before the throne of God, the psalmist isn't taking vengeance into his own hands. He's not trying to bring judgment as the judge, jury, and executioner. He's turning it over to the one who judges justly. And this is the best thing that we can do with those feelings of hatred and anger towards our enemy. Paul in Romans 12, 19 says it like this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, and here he quotes Deuteronomy 32-35, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Let the Lord handle vengeance. Now, when the psalmist is releasing his anger, he's also gaining perspective. You see, as he turns his enemies, those who hate God and those who hate Zion, as he turns his enemies over to the wrath of God, do you know how he sees them? He sees them as grass on housetops. Grass on housetops. Now, in the ancient Near East, on the roofs, there would be thatch, and it would be dirt and grass kind of piled up, and maybe a seed of grass could get blown up and could plant in that shallow dirt and could begin to sprout up. But the sun is so scorching and the dirt is so shallow that that grass seed would quickly wither in the heat. And the psalmist is saying that he sees those who afflict him like those scorched grasses that rise up today, but they're gone tomorrow. They're fleeting. They're fading. They won't last. One commentator says it like this, they may have made long furrows, but they are only short grasses. And that's perspective. And that comes from releasing our anger. 
And then fourthly, in verse 8, we have reorienting our story, reorienting our story. I think the very last part of verse 8 is a different speaker. I think he's a different speaker here. We're talking about withered grass in verse 6, so that there's no harvest in verse 7, and no harvest blessing in verse 8. And then there's a shift to another blessing at the end of verse 8, and it's a different speaker. It's no longer singular, me, my youth, my back, but now it's plural. How does it start? We. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, maybe it's priests stepping in or some sort of royal or Trinitarian formula, but, and here's the important thing, the name of the Lord is being put on Israel. This is a benediction of sorts. The name of God is being put on the people of God. Remember in Numbers chapter 6, when God gives to Aaron the Aaronic blessing through Moses, and he says in Numbers 6.23 to Moses, speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, and you know this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then he says this, by saying that to them, so shall they put my name on the people of Israel. So shall they put my name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And what does the end of verse 8 say here in Psalm 129? We bless you in the name of the Lord. Do you see what's happening as we retell our pain, verses 1 and 3, and remember our deliverance, verses 2 and 4, and release our anger, verses 5 through 8, God is reorienting our story, verse 8. He is transforming our affliction into blessing as we wait on Him. You see, Psalm 126 has been realized. Those who sow tears, who sow in tears, shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Oh, brothers and sisters, weeping in a season of planting will eventually give way to joy in the harvest. Or the New Testament puts it this way, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So if you're in that season of weeping, Christian, hang on. Hang on. But how does the Lord do this? How, how does the Lord transform our affliction into blessing? And the answer is this, and don't miss this, by being afflicted himself. By being afflicted himself. Verse 3, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't you see Jesus had his back plowed? He was scourged. He was flogged right? And Isaiah interprets that and says, by his scourging, by his flogging, by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. And because Jesus suffered, 
he was able to set us free. Do you remember when he declared our deliverance in that synagogue on that day? He reads the scroll from Isaiah 61. He reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to what? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he reads that, and he rolls up the scroll, and he hands it to the attendant. And all the eyes of the synagogue are looking at him. And he says, today, this scripture is beginning to be fulfilled in your hearing. Do you hear that announcement of freedom, that announcement of deliverance, that announcement was greater even than Juneteenth. You see, Juneteenth was the announcement of freedom from temporal slavery, but Jesus' proclamation of freedom is an announcement of freedom from eternal slavery, from slavery to sin and slavery to death. And that announcement of freedom gives you a new status and a new identity, a new life, a new perspective, and a new beginning. And in his suffering, Jesus forgave his enemies. Do you remember with his plowed back as they hang him on the gnarled tree? What does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then because of his suffering, Jesus blesses us. In the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays for us. He prays for our keeping. He prays for our guarding. He prays for our sanctification and protection. But do you know how the prayer ends? John 17, verse 26. He says, I made known to them your name. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. Why? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You can almost hear Jesus saying, we bless you in the name of the Lord. And remembering that, remembering Jesus' pain and deliverance and forgiveness and blessing, remembering that will reorient your story, even when your path takes you into the valley of the shadow of death. You see, remembering that is the only way that we can survive affliction. The Lord transforms our affliction into blessing as we wait on Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, for those who are in a season of weeping, even for those who can look back and remember that season of pain. I pray that you would give them the courage to retell their pain and remember their deliverance and release their anger. And I pray that you would be at work in their pain to reorient their story. And we ask this in Jesus' name, who was afflicted on our behalf. Amen.